Well, hello, friends at Mafra. Uh, good to be back with you, and uh, God willing, I'll be there in person next Sunday. But uh, we're continuing our series on the Book of Acts, and I hope you've uh, had a good look at uh, the last part of Acts chapter eleven and uh, into chapter twelve. Uh, but before we uh, think about it, let's let's pray. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you've gathered us uh, in your name around your word uh, so that we can uh, profit from hearing these words about your Son, the Lord Jesus. So help us today by your Holy Spirit. Guide us, we pray. And uh, please help us to take these, these words to heart as though they are your words for us today. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been paying any attention to... Uh, the news lately, there are some things going on in the world that uh, rightly should concern us and should be uh, the focus of our prayers. Uh, I attended a an Australian Christian lobby inspired or uh, sponsored activity a couple of weeks ago where a lawyer uh, spoke to pastors uh, over Zoom to help us to understand the uh, provisions of the, uh, the Victorian government's uh, conversion therapy bill and the implications that will have, because what it's done is it's made prayer illegal. If people come to anyone and ask that uh, they have received prayer for unwanted same-sex attraction, that's now illegal. Uh, and, and so there'll be challenges that will come, because you see, for many people, uh, Christianity is not just something... Well, it used to be that... You know, most people haven't been Christian, but, but they, it was basically something that was tolerated. Uh, if you spoke about Jesus, you were regarded as an eccentric, but if you didn't get in the way, then you were at least put up with. But there's increasingly the case now uh, it, it, that people regard Christianity as not just something that you can believe, but something that's actually harmful, uh, potentially uh, dangerous and, and therefore evil. Uh, and so we're living in a world now which is likely to become increasingly hostile to Christians, and that, you know, that could alarm us. But as well as that, in the world, uh, we see Russia invading Ukraine and, and people are now talking about how this is going to shake up the whole world economy and, uh, and political realities that we've become used to since the Second World War are now being uh, questioned. And as well as that, in our own region, we have the activities of China. And so these things might alarm us, they might frighten us. But in fact, the world's always been a place which has been dangerous for Christians and we see that in the Book of Acts. The world's always been a place where cruel and evil men have inflicted their will on others when they can get away with it. But within a world like that, there are biblical realities that help us to cope with those things. And, and we need to take them very carefully to heart. Now, here's just two, just two passages, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. I wonder if you believe these things and I wonder if the truths of these words shape the way you look at the world. Habakkuk 2 verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labour merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So that there's an acknowledgement there from the prophet that there are people who build cities on blood. In other words, through conquest, through evil and murder but God pronounces a woe on them. But there's a day coming when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And that's the future to which the Bible invites all to come uh, as they put their trust in Jesus. And so writing in Philippians in chapter 2, very famous words that the Apostle Paul wrote, he looked ahead to a day 
when at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is going to come a day when cruel tyrants, evil people who seem to get by pretty well in life, will one day have to bow their knee to the Lord Jesus along with everybody else. His lordship over all the earth will be acknowledged fully and finally, even by people who in this life refused. So do you believe that? Are those ideas, are they shaping your outlook on life? Or are you looking at life and saying, well, this is terrible, God's lost control? Well, it's those sort of realities that drive the book of Acts. Uh, the book of Acts is a book that was written, uh, according to Acts chapter 1-8, to, to show how the words of Jesus, that his people, his followers, his disciples would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It tells us that Jesus' mission of restoring the reign of God in an evil and corrupt and fallen world is going to be accomplished. And the, the book of Acts shows us the very earliest dimensions of that. So in the last couple of chapters, we've seen some really big breakthroughs in the book of Acts. Um, in chapter 10, we saw the story of how Peter was given a vision and then told to go and preach to a Roman centurion uh, called Cornelius. And all the members of his household believed the message and showed Peter that God shows no partiality, Jew or Gentile, anyone who comes by faith to Jesus is included in God's eternal family. And then in chapter 11, uh, that Nathan preached last time, uh, we, we read the story of how after the persecution of Stephen, many people left Jerusalem, scattered far and wide, and wherever they went, they gossiped the gospel. They spoke about Jesus. And so they got as far as Antioch, and, and, and there people began to believe in the Lord Jesus. And then Greek-speaking people came from uh, Cyprus and Cyrene, and they, they preached the word of Jesus, not to Jews, but to Gentiles. And they believed, and we told a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And so we see the apostles going out, but we also see ordinary Christians going out. They're not even named, but the gospel is going on. And clearly the Holy Spirit is directing the growth of the Christian movement. And so in chapter 11, we see more progress of the faith and more opposition. And so I've called the talk today, Death and Prison, but the word increases. And so in verses 20 to seven, 27 to 30 of chapter 11, we see a united church in action. And so we read there, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So this is the, the same time as, as people are believing and turning to the Lord in Antioch. In those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. In other words, the Roman Emperor Claudius was on the throne at that time. Um, now, initially, when Peter reported the fact that Gentiles had become believers, some of the people in Jerusalem were reluctant to accept that because they thought that a Gentile would have to convert first to Judaism and go through all of the Jewish rituals that they'd been part of. But once Peter said, no, no, God shows no partiality, I've been given a vision and now I've seen it, then the others in Jerusalem believed that as well. But now what we find is the reverse. People who ethnically are Gentiles, they're not Jews, are hearing the plight of the believers in Jerusalem because Agabus tells them that there's going to be a famine, a terrible famine. And so what do they do? Verse 29, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it 
to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now there were many famines in Claudius' reign. There was one in the first year of his reign, the second, the fourth, the ninth and the eleventh years. There was a, a well-known famine in Judea in 44 to 48 AD. Now we live in times of relative food security. It's never been a problem in my life and probably not in yours. Where's the next meal coming from? But in those days before refrigeration and before advanced food storage techniques, uh, famine was a really serious threat. And so when the, believers, the new believers in Antioch heard that the believers in Jerusalem were going to be affected by the famine, they went straight into action. They, they gave as much as they could afford uh, to, to send relief to the brothers of Judea. They trusted that collection to Barnabas and Saul. Notice it's Barnabas and Saul. Saul hasn't had his name changed yet to Paul. Barnabas is listed first because at this stage he's the more famous of the two. That will change later in the book of Acts. But they, uh, they went down and what did they do? They took the, the, the proceeds of this collection to the elders of the church. That's the first mention of elders in, as church leaders in the book of Acts. And it shows that elders were people who were trusted with all sorts of responsibilities, including financial distribution. So they went to those who were the leaders and made sure that they looked after the collection in a godly way. Now, there's a principle established here which we need all of us to take to heart, and that's that Christians need to help other Christians. So Paul, writing in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, says, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So when we hear that Christians nearby and elsewhere are struggling, it, it, it's beholden on us to follow the example of the Antiochian Christians and to help out. Uh, do good to everyone, but especially to those who belong to Jesus. And so we move on to chapter 12, and in verses 1 to 5, we read about King Herod and his violence against the, uh, against the church, his violence while the church is praying. About that time, Luke often drops in a little hint about the time, so at the same time as the collection's been taken up in Antioch, meanwhile, at that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. What did he do? Verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So Herod was the grandson of the Herod that was on the throne when Jesus was born. Uh, he ruled between 41 and 44 AD. He'd lived in Rome for a period of time. He'd received some of his education there, so he was very well connected and so he became a ruler of great power when he came back to the part of the world that the Romans called Palestine. Now, like all rulers wanting to make sure that their reign is lengthy, he wanted to keep his region stable, which meant that he had to please the Jews. The Jews were the dominant religion in the area, and he wanted to keep them sweet with him so that they wouldn't tell people in Rome that Herod was not much of a ruler. And so he got rid of one of those people that the Jews didn't like much, and that's James, the brother of John. This is not James, the brother of Jesus. This is James, the disciple, who we read about in the Gospels. We read about James and John, the sons of Zebedee, sometimes called the sons of thunder. Uh, but he was uh, put to death with the sword, which means he was beheaded. Now, when Herod saw that that put him up in the opinion polls, like all politicians who sense that there's something that's going to make them popular, they exploit that. And so he thinks, right, well, I'll arrest another disciple. I'll get Peter, who, of course, was the most prominent of the disciples. 
he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now we're told in verse 3 that this was during the days of unleavened bread. In other words, the Passover period. The days of unleavened bread were the seven days after Passover. But Jewish custom and Jewish law said that there should be no executions during that time. So rather than kill Peter, as he'd done James, Herod put Peter in prison. And so verse 4, we read that he'd seized him, put him in prison, and he delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover to bring him out to the people. In other words, to bring him out so that the, the, the people could say, away with him, just as they'd done to Jesus. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayers for him were made to God by the church. Now that was a serious squad of soldiers. Uh, a squad was four soldiers. And so he, he was guarded by four shifts of soldiers, soldiers round the clock. Um, earnest prayer was offered for him, we read. Now, we weren't told that about James, but it's probably safe to conclude that when, except that maybe James was just taken out of their midst and, and killed straight away, who knows? But, but no doubt, if James was put in prison, he, he would have been prayed for as well. So why was it that Peter was spared due to the prayers of God's people and James wasn't. We're not told, but that's something we'll have to, come, have to come back to. And so verses 6 to 11, we read that Peter was rescued. Uh, Peter was spared because of the, the prayers of God's people by the church. And so we read there in verse 6, Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, so at just the last minute, Peter was the recipient of a miraculous reprieve. Now notice that uh, Peter was well secured in the prison. So we read there that he was sleeping between two soldiers. He was chained to each of them, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So they really were intent on keeping Peter locked up. So how does Peter get released in answer to the earnest prayers of the church? Well, God sends an angel. And so verse 7, we read there that a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, woke him saying, get up quickly. Now notice the miracles here. The angel is associated with a number of miraculous interventions. A light shines in the darkness. Then in verse 7, the chains fell off Peter's hands. Peter is told to get up and dress himself and, and follow the angel. And then in verse nine, uh, verse 10, we read when they passed the first and second guard. So the guards weren't woken by the angel's activity, probably just as well for the guards they weren't. And then when they get out to the iron gate of the prison leading into the city, it opened for them of its own accord. And so they went out and then the angel left Peter and Peter was left on his own thinking, what's just happened? Is that a vision or is it real? He wasn't sure. But then he realised when he was out on the street, now I am sure in verse 11 that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So Peter knew that his life was on the line. Now this is the second of three miraculous prison escapes that we read about. Peter's already had one in Acts chapter 5, where an angel released him and John. Now he's been released by an angel on his own again. And then later on in chapter 16, we read that Paul and Barnabas were in, in uh, Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi, and there was an earthquake sent by God to release them. And again, that raises the question, if God can do that, why doesn't he release all Christian prisoners? We'll get back to that. And so what we find here is Herod, the ruler, and the Jewish religious authorities conspiring to obstruct the advance of the gospel that Jesus said would happen. So this is opposition. 
which is directed at, at putting a stop to the spread of the gospel. Well, these earnest prayers are being prayed, and in response to that, the angel has come, sent by God to release Peter miraculously. Peter's out on the street now, and in verses 12 to 17 of chapter 12, we see that the disciples get more than they ask for. So Peter proceeds, first of all, to the house of Mary, uh, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Now, that's an interesting little aside there. Uh, John, also known as Mark, becomes quite a significant player in the New Testament story. He's mentioned repeatedly. We'll see him uh, mentioned again in verse 25 later in our reading. But John sometimes was called Mark, and he is the author of Mark's gospel. He became an assistant of Peter. We believe that he wrote down Peter's recollections of the story of Jesus. But as well as that, we read later in the book of Acts, he was chosen because he was a cousin of Barnabas to be a travelling companion of the Apostle Paul. So just a little fascinating window into the life of the church there. And here's something else. We've already read earlier in the book of Acts that to help any believers who were in need, the believers would sell their possessions. We're told a couple of times that they made sure that no one was in any lack and so they sold what they owned, including houses and lands, we're told. But clearly, not every believer sold everything they owned and neither was it expected of them because they all had to have somewhere to live and now we find that Mary has a house. So she's not renting, it's her place. And so the idea, if you've read those earlier chapters and think, right, I've got to sell off everything I own, take it to cash converters and, and place the rest at the elders' disposal. That, that's the wrong conclusion to draw. Don't let it stop you being generous with the things that you can uh, be generous with, but you do need somewhere to live, just like Mary. Well, anyway, Peter goes to Mary's house and he knocks on the door and a servant girl called Rhoda comes down and there's this comical reaction because Peter's there knocking and when Rhoda realises that it's Peter... She runs back inside and doesn't actually let him in. Uh, so we're meant to find that a little bit amusing, I think. But when she goes in, even though they've been praying for Peter, well, what have they been praying for? We're not told. But when Peter's there at the door knocking, they're not letting him in and they're telling Rhoda that she's out of her mind. Um, verse, six, verse 15, they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept on insisting that it was so. And they think, well, it might be his angel. That's one of the places in the Bible we get the idea that perhaps God gives each person a guardian angel. There's not a lot of clarity about that, but that's one of the places that it comes from. But here's an interesting point too, because I've been in enough Christian gatherings where people have preached that if you want your prayers to be answered, you've got to make them specific. And if you don't tell God exactly what you want, he can't answer them. Well, clearly these people had been given more than they expected. The answer to their prayers was more than they'd asked for because they didn't expect Peter to be released. Perhaps they'd been praying that God would look after him, that he would keep him strong in the faith, and they're good things to pray. But clearly they didn't expect it, uh, expect it that, that, um, that Peter would actually be released. The wonderful thing about God is that he does give us more than we ask for. He gives us more than we deserve. And, and we're not to think that his capacity is limited by the weakness of our prayers. God honours the faithful prayers of his people. And we see an example of it here. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 tells us that, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask for or think according to the power at work within us. 
So yes, we should pray. Yes, we should pour our hearts out to God with specific requests. But we leave the answers to him and he is not limited by the feebleness of our prayers because he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask. So in verses 18 to 19 there, we read about Herod's fury. And so the guards have failed because Peter's got out and they're not able to explain it. And so when the day came, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Now, an examination means he tortured them. Uh, the, the Romans had a habit of examining people with whips. Uh, and then having done that, he put them to death. Now, that's an interesting contrast to what happened to the guards who guarded the tomb of Jesus because they weren't executed, they were bribed. And so after Jesus was released from, from the tomb, after the, the stone was rolled away and Jesus came out, uh, we can read in Matthew chapter 28 at verse 11 that, that, that the guards were bribed um, to, to tell a story that the Jewish authorities came up with. In fact, they should have been put to death because they'd failed in their duty according to what we read here. Well, at chapter 20, we read of the, the death of Herod. Uh, verse 20, we read the death of Herod Agrippa. And to use the words of Psalm 49, he was a man of pomp without understanding. And so the scene changes now. We've gone from the imprisonment and the release of Peter, at the, in, the, the imprisonment at the instigation of Herod, this tyrant, this very powerful, very wealthy, uh, influential man. And now in contrast, we read of how his life ended. And so verse 20 of chapter 12, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, in other words, a day of a religious feast, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, do you remember when Peter preached to Cornelius? Cornelius bowed down before him and Peter said, no, stand up, I'm just a man like you. Herod didn't warn the crowd. He accepted the praise that belongs to God alone and God dealt with him. Now, Josephus was a historian at that time. He was a Jewish historian who wrote a history of the Jewish people for the Romans. But he records this very incident and he gives us some more details about it. He says that in the third year of, of Herod Agrippa's reign over Judea, he was celebrating some games in honour of Caesar. And on the second day of those games, probably in the Hippodrome in, in uh, Caesarea, the place where they had the chariot races, he put on a robe, says Josephus, made entirely of silver and he went into the theatre and it was early in the day so the sun, the, all the people seated had their backs to the sun but the sun lit him up and, shone, and he shone in their faces. So according to Josephus, that was one of the things that persuaded the people that Herod was more than just a man, he looked like a god. And Josephus says that it was all the flatterers, all the people that wanted to suck up to the king, the toadies, the people that were trying to gain his, his blessing through, through, um, through being sycophants towards him, they raised 
their voices. And says Josephus, he felt a pain in his heart and all at once he began violently ill in the stomach. So Herod, make no mistake, was a powerful man. He was a man who had the power of life and death over James and over Peter. And Peter would have been executed were it not for the intervention of the angel. We can look at the powerful people in our world and sometimes feel very small and very insignificant and just plain powerless in their hands. And there are plenty of Christians all around the world who are suffering terribly at the hands of tyrants and and those in authority. But this is again where we need to bring the Bible to mind and we need to have a biblical perspective on all of these sorts of things. So Psalm 49 verses 13 to 20 offer this extended reflection on people who live life without God, even very powerful ones. It's a question that's asked also in the book of Ecclesiastes. But in Psalm 49 verse 13 we read, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. In other words, misplaced faith. Like sheep, they're appointed for Sheol, the world of the dead. Death will be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Those who maintain faith in God through the Lord Jesus Christ will one day gain the ascendancy over even the most powerful of human rulers. The writer of Psalm 49 presses on and in verse 15 he says, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. So we know that through the resurrection to eternal life that's effected through the Lord Jesus Christ, death is not the worst that can happen to us. No matter how powerful a person may be in this life, death will end it. Death is the end of every person, but only those who put their trust in Jesus will be raised to new life. The others will be consigned to the pit. And so the psalmist goes on, says, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Verse 20, man in his pomp yet without understanding is like the beasts that perish. Herod died like a dog. Death will be his shepherd. He may have looked powerful. He may have had the power of life and death. But in biblical terms, his end was certain because he had received worship that was God's alone. And therefore he was judged for it. Well, verses 24 and 25, as our reading comes to an end, we see that tyrants die, but the church rolls on. So we've just been told about this terrible death where he was eaten of worms and died. But verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Strong contrast. Herod dies, the word increases and multiplies. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, in other words, taking the collection to the suffering Jerusalem church, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark, the person we've been introduced to earlier in the reading. And so Luke has a habit of introducing people, then leaving them for a while and coming back to them. We're about to see a major transition because this is really the last big episode that Peter features in. He'll turn up again in chapter 15, but from now on, the focus will be on Saul, whose name becomes Paul. This is a turning point in the book. But as we finish, there's some challenges and there's some lessons for us, I think, in this reading. The first of those is that Christians need to be generous. 
we need to heed the example of Antioch and look to help suffering fellow believers, of whom there are many. So the Open Doors organisation is one of those organisations that takes very seriously the need of persecuted Christians. And according to their website, one in seven Christians worldwide is actively persecuted for their faith. One in seven. So look around, count off every seven person. Uh, that's the, the, the nature. We, we, we don't suffer very much in Australia, but other places it's just regular and normal. There's more than 360 million Christians suffering worldwide right as we speak. What can we do to help? Uh, let's be like the Antiochians and look for opportunity. But there's another lesson, and that's that we must remember that in answer to our prayers, God can give even more than we ask for or expect. So don't ever think that God is limited by our prayers. God honours our faithfulness in prayer. You'll hear someone sometimes people say, oh, he's a wonderful prayer, she's a wonderful prayer. Uh, it's not the words we use that impress God. God looks at the heart. Your prayers may seem to you uh, halting and um, ineffective. They may seem repetitious. They may seem dull. But if you mean them, then, then God hears them. Uh, the, the prayer of faith is the prayer that is, uh, that is prayed in the name of the Lord Jesus. And God will answer that, not always in the way that we expect, but according to his, his will and purpose. He doesn't always give us what we ask for. And so his protection is not always physical. James died. Peter was spared. But then even Peter, we read later, well, it's not recorded in the Bible. Uh, there's only two apostles' deaths that are recorded in the Bible, and one of those is only forecast. So we've got James here who, who was beheaded. Later on in the book of Acts, we'll realise that, that Paul was imprisoned. And in 2 Timothy, he, he tells us that his time's not long. So we do know that Paul was executed, but we... We, we can read in the, uh, the Christian historian Eusebius that Peter was crucified uh, uh, during the reign of Emperor Nero. And so God answered prayers for Peter's release at this point, but later on Peter was executed. That's part of the mystery of being a believer in Jesus. It doesn't always work out that it will be safe for us in physical terms. But let's remember the words of Jesus. In Luke 21, Jesus was talking to his disciples about time to come and, and their immediate future. He said a time would come, verse 12 of Luke 21, that people will lay hands on you and persecute you. That's exactly what Herod did. He laid violent hands on James. It came literally true. They will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. That's what's happened. Jesus predicted it. But later on in chapter 21 of Luke, he says, some of you they will put to death. That's happened. Verse 17, he says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And then he goes on and he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. Well, how is it that some can be put to death and yet not a hair of their head will perish? He says in verse 19, Luke 21, 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. He's talking about resurrection. The protection that God promises and that Jesus is speaking about is fundamentally eternal protection. It may be that in this life we'll lose it physically for the sake of following Jesus, as so many have done over all these centuries. But Jesus says, not a hair of your head will perish because the protection he promises is eternal by way of resurrection. 
And so there's a lesson here for us. There is a fate worse than death. And we need to bear that in mind when we look at the apparent triumph of evil people in our world. Their fate is like Herod's. It may not be immediate as Herod's was, but it's coming. Herod's was a foretaste of God's judgment on all those who oppose him and all those who oppose his people and all those who persist in allowing others to regard them as more than they are. Anyone who won't bow the knee to Jesus. So why doesn't God always deal with arrogant and cruel people as he did with Herod? Augustus's temple, Caesar Augustus had a temple built in Caesarea to worship him there. It's well known that the Roman emperors loved to be worshipped as gods. Why didn't God kill them all? How many other leaders since then have behaved like gods and received worship? Well, plenty, obviously. That's the normal way of it with human leaders. But just because God can do something doesn't mean he always will. And that's another major lesson of the book of Acts. God did rescue Peter with angels. But there's plenty of Christians suffering in jails around the world now who are not miraculously delivered because obviously it's not God's purpose in the same way that God didn't spare Peter being crucified. But Herod's death stands as a warning to tyrants great and small uh, that God alone will be glorified. Just because God can do something doesn't mean he always will. We need to learn the lesson of the book of Acts that God is powerful God is moving the gospel forward. God is working out his purposes that will one day see the whole earth full of his glory and every knee bowing to Jesus. But to conclude, here's another word from the prophet Habakkuk, which tells us that the vision waits its appointed time. It's Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3. And the prophet writes, Still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. So yes, we live in a difficult and dangerous world and it is probably going to get more difficult for believers. So resolve yourself now that you will be one of those who endures because Jesus says by your endurance you will gain your life. Don't give up following Jesus, even if it becomes difficult, even if it becomes dangerous. Continue to press on because the reward will be great. If you wonder how long, the answer is a little longer. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay because the time is in God's hands. But Ephesians 3.20 that we read before finishes with 21. And I want to finish with this as a prayer uh, as we conclude now. Ephesians 3.20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. See you next week.